Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive from my work. Now I appeal to Euodia and Synthesis, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a, want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive the reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings. And all of the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You may be seated. Christian unity is a matter that should be taken seriously because God takes it seriously. That's the short, short thesis that... Um, I put to you now. See, in, in the Bible, the Lord Jesus prays that all his disciples everywhere at all times will be one. One in their fellowship with him, one in their life together. And when the Apostle Paul writes about the church, he talks about there being unity of the spirit as a given reality which embraces all Christians here and now. 
So church unity doesn't mean primarily or even essentially um, church union, though a lot of people make that mistake and think it does. Christian unity means acknowledging that we're all of us sharers in the love of the same Savior and the power of the same Holy Spirit and the worship of the same Heavenly Father and being together in that brings us together as brothers and sisters in a single family so that all Christians straight away must see themselves as brothers, sister or sisters and friends to every other Christian in the world. One of the wonderful things that happens worldwide is the people of different race, different background, different culture, when they find that they are fellow Christians, embrace each other, are instant friends with each other, love and care for each other, and rejoice in being together. It's a glorious thing which is only known in the church. People think that life in the church is all dull. When one starts to experience Christian unity with fellow believers, one realizes just how false that is. If you're unfamiliar with that young, hip, relevant pastor in that video, it's a man by the name of J.I. Packer. He's so relevant, I'll bet he's wearing a pair of skinny jeans underneath that suit. I think it's good to spend time learning from those who have forgotten more about theology than we will ever know. I also think it's important for us to look to these people as they're nearing the, the end of their journey in this life, as they begin to approach death, as they're standing at eternity's doorstep, what is the thing that they're speaking about? What are they writing about as it concerns the church? What do they think is most important? And I think Packer, in that video, addresses something that touches all human hearts. It's something we all care about and value. He's speaking, yes, of Christian unity within the church, but unity is an idea, it's a concept that I think we all place value on. See, we as humans, we desire unity. We live in a culture here in Asheville that says and affirms that it values unity. Half the cars you pass on I-240 will have either a, a, a one love or a coexist or a tolerance bumper sticker on it. We affirm unity, yet it always seems to be just right around the corner. We never can seem to quite grasp unity. It's true, in society, sometimes we do see glimmers of unity. We do see some hope of us coming together as humanity because we recognize that there's something better about us being together than there is about us being apart. But usually these glimmers of unity that we see are centered around great tragedies like 9-11 or some school shooting or natural disaster. But for a moment, at least, we're willing to set aside some of the interpersonal conflict that divides us because we're focused on something bigger than ourselves. But the things that we focus on, the purposes, the causes, whatever it is that's bringing us together temporarily, are always non-eternal. 
And so unity begins to wane as the purpose begins to fade and conflict comes back even stronger, it seems, than it was before. You see, we want unity. We desire it on the one hand. We affirm its value. But on the other hand, we seek conflict. We seek to have our voices heard. We seek to be right. We want you to view the world exactly the same way that we view the world. So on the one hand, we say we affirm the value of unity. On the other, we're looking for every excuse in the world that we can find to draw a line of division. But we do desire unity. We do seek it. And I think the reason we seek it is because we were created in the image of God. Believer and non-believer alike was created in God's image. And because we're created in God's image, there's certain things about God, certain things that he says are good and right that echoes in our hearts and our minds. We affirm the value of the things that God says is good. You see, unity is in our DNA, much like the desire for love and justice, because we carry within ourselves the image of God. Now, the image is tainted, to be sure, by sin, yet the desire remains. So I think, before we begin looking at this, we need a clear example of what unity really does look like. And I think the best example we can find is found in the very nature of God. We see in God an eternal unity absent of all conflict. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith, one of the things that's an absolute must for us to believe is in an eternal and fixed, unchangeable relationship that has existed from eternity past known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in one what? God. One God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have existed in perfect unity for all of eternity. This is a unity marked by love, selflessness, and submission. So when I say that unity matters to God, it's much more than that. I cannot even communicate how important it is to God because it's not something that he just thinks about. It's something by his very nature that he actually is. So the unity expressed or experienced within the Trinity should spill over into God's people, the church. In fact, that's what we see Jesus pray about. As he's ending his earthly ministry, um, he takes some time to pray in John 17. And during this prayer, he's focusing on perhaps one of the most important things that he can pray for his people. And I would encourage you to read the entire chapter because we get this beautiful image of what unity within the Trinity looks like as the Son is expressing love to the Father and talking about how they are one. But after he finishes that, his prayer is that we will be one just as they are one. And he prays this in John 17, 20 and 21. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That is us. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Unity was something that the church in the early days picked up on. 
The reason being is they had bought this story by a Nazarene carpenter that he was going to die, and then he did, and then he raised from the dead. Their focus was on their risen Savior. That means they put aside all cultural differences in, an, in, in the endeavor of following their saviors. They were so focused on Jesus that they began to do things that pushed back against cultural norms of the day in a very, very radical way. You see, to fully understand what unity in the church, which was birthed in first century Palestine, looked like, we need to understand what culture of the day looked like. Ethnocentrism was so much a part of society that no one even thought it was wrong to hold to racist ideologies. To the Jew, all non-Jews were dogs. To the Roman, anyone who did not have Roman citizenship was less than a human being. Then comes the church. And here we see, even within the same congregation, a, a uh, Roman centurion and a former Pharisee existing together. And the culture around them looked at it and was like, what in the world is going on? Because no good Jew is going to associate with a Roman centurion. No good Roman is going to associate with these Jews. Now, the temptation was very strong there, like it is today, to do church the easy way. What I mean by that is they could have said, okay, we have these core beliefs. All right, this is kind of a mere Christianity. To call yourself a Christ follower, you must believe in these things. But we're going to kind of make church fit everybody else's persuasion. So as long as you believe this, you're a Christ follower, but we're going to have a Roman church. That way we've only got Romans, and we don't have to worry about the whole Roman, Jewish, Gentile problem. Then we're going to have a Jewish church. We don't have to worry about you know, the uncircumcised dogs being among us. And then we're going to have a church for those who are not Roman and not Jewish, and they're all going to come together, and they're going to exist in a separate kind of body, separate sort of form. We'll all be the church in creed, but we'll not do it practically. They resisted this temptation, and we see the outside world wondering what in the world is going on. How can these people be together? But you see, because they knew that they belonged to Christ, they knew that they belonged to each other. Now, when we talk about unity, the temptation is to go from unity to uniformity. And I think we need to look at that just a little bit this morning. You see, unity is a diverse group of people with a central focus moving towards the same goal. It's a group of people who are not concerned with looking around and pointing out the differences that are among them. They don't have time to. It's because they're focused on Jesus and they're focused on running headlong towards him. Uniformity, by contrast, is unity that's achieved, a false unity that's achieved through applying external criteria to things. You see, we love cookie-cutter relationships. We like unity. We want to be in fellowship with others, but we want it on our terms. You know, we want, we want everybody that we're in relationship with to look like us. So we look around and we start picking things apart, and we're like, ah, yeah, okay, so, yeah, you, you read what translation of the Bible? Yeah, sorry, uh, can't, really, can't really have much to do with you. Uh, you listen to modern worship? Mm, sorry, we can't really have anything to do with you. That's uniformity, and it's false unity, because all of the attention is focused on ourselves and what it is that we want. Unity, however, is us not looking at each other, but looking rather at our Savior. 
But despite early success, by the time this letter was written, some 25 years after the resurrection, conflict was showing up within the church. We see it in the epistles. We see it in the relationships of the New Testament. Now, Philippians was somewhat of a model church. They were good. They were doing a lot of things right. Yet there was a cancer growing within this church that Paul, in chapter 4, knows he must deal with. Let's read it. Philippians 4, 1 and 3. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive from my work. Now I appeal to Yodia and to Syntyche. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Notice first that verse 1 begins with therefore. This therefore is important because the therefore hinges us between what was said at the end of chapter 3 and is necessary to know before we step into chapter 4. In chapter 3, we learned last week, Paul was discussing the necessity of having an eternal perspective, of not focusing on the here and now, but rather to be looking to what lies ahead for the Christ follower. So as we look at this, remember, to understand this, we must first have an eternal perspective. I love how Paul then transitions into a difficult statement. Paul knows what's going on. He knows what he's about to say. He knows that it's probably not going to be very popular. I mean, I would have loved to have been in that church sitting there when these two women's names were read and kind of look over, everybody kind of doing that awkward thing, like, uh, where's Yodia? Where's Seneca? They just, they just got called out. But before he does that, he does something I think is great. He affirms the love that he has for the congregation. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Notice first the statement he makes to stay true to the Lord. The Philippian church was a church that was experiencing tremendous external pressure through the form of persecution. If they were to survive that, they must stay true to the Lord. They must be focused on the Lord. And as we will see, it's also a body of believers that is experiencing internal pressure through the form of interpersonal conflict within the members of the body. But before Paul gets into all of that, we hear him say this, my dear brothers and sisters, I love that, my dear brothers and sisters, my dear friends, I love you and I long to see you. Let's not think about this in terms of the church in general. Let's think about this as Highland Christian Church. If you're separate from this body for any length of time, from your reach group, from the Sunday morning gatherings, from the relationships that you enjoy from being part of this fellowship, do you long for that? Do you miss it? Do you desire it? What about love? Do we express love in this congregation? Are we willing to show those that we are part of a family of, that we love them? Do we express it? And do the men, it's okay if you tell another man you love him, 
in Christ, if you have to add that little thing to the end to make it feel right for you. But are we encouraging each other? Are we spending time affirming the value that we see in each other? He says that this church is his joy and his crown. It causes me to wonder, who here is our joy? Who are we investing in? Who are we meeting with? Who are the people that we think about? Who are we praying for? Who do we help move? Who do we help in times of trouble? Who are we mentoring? Who is our crown? Would we view anybody as such? Because you see, people matter, and it's a priority in the church. A lot of times, our priorities are misspent. Oftentimes, our priorities are found in the pursuit of pleasure, power, position, popularity, prestige, and possessions, which causes us to push people to the side in favor of going after our own agenda. But we see Paul saying, reject those things. Those things are not important. They'll get you nowhere. What's important is people. Be about the pursuit of people in the church. We see in the book of Philippians, it's a book that is filled with relationships. We see the relationship between Paul and Timothy, Paul and the elders of the church at Philippi. We see the relationship uh, being expressed more fully as we read the entire chapter of chapter 4 this morning, even though we're only looking at the first nine verses, we read the whole thing because you get this picture of just how much fellowship was important to the Apostle Paul and how much he was trying to express that to the people at this church. You see, the problem with the conflict that Paul's about to address was only a problem because relationships matter and people are a priority. If this is just some function that we show up for on a Sunday morning, who cares if there's conflict in the church? Sweep it under the rug and ignore it. But because people are a priority, because relationships matter, this issue had to be dealt with. And now Paul jumps headlong into it. He says, now I appeal to Yodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. I love that Paul does not even consider what the problem was worth mentioning. He doesn't say, quit fighting about X, Y, and Z. He just says, settle the disagreement. And we know the disagreement wasn't theological. One of these women had not slipped into false teaching. If that had been the case, Paul would have went after that, and he would have went after it hard. No, what we know is these are two women who were very active in the church. They were very influential in the church. They were very ministry-focused. Perhaps their conflict was over ministry philosophy, or the church did not look exactly the way they thought it should. And so that created a conflict within the church as they're bickering back and forth about the way things should look. Well, whatever the conflict was, because Paul doesn't mention it, we know it's petty in nature. It's something that really should have just been dealt with, and then, uh, and then they should have moved on. But notice, too, that both of them are called out. That means one of them's not at fault and the other's innocent. Both of them had a problem, and the problem was the conflict that existed between the two of them. Now, Paul ends this with an interesting statement. We know these women are Christ followers. We know they're Christians. So it seems odd that at the end, Paul tacks on this little whose names are written in the book of life, along with Clement and Syzygos and some of these other people that are mentioned here. Why does he say that? Well, if you're unfamiliar with the, the book of life, 
The book of life is where the children of God's names are recorded for eternity. And the best imagery that I can give of what the book of life is, is that it's pretty much a family tree. Paul is pointing to the reality that these women are part of the same family. You know, we can choose our friends, but we cannot choose our family. I did not choose my children, my mother, my father, my brothers, my sisters. But by nature of our relationship, we are stuck together. It's the same thing that we see in the church. You see, because we belong to Christ, we belong to each other. Let's be authentic about things for just a minute. I don't know how many people are here this morning, yeah, 230, something like that. I'm certain that there's, there's those of us here that would look at other people within this body. Mm, I don't really like them. I don't care for them. I don't like the way they do things. I don't like the way they dress. Uh, they're getting old like John Long, <laughs> who wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> And we, would say, and, and we would say, yeah, I just don't like those people. And let's just admit to someone, we're probably that somebody. So what do we do? What's the solution to interpersonal conflict within the body? Do we gossip? Do we try to uh, draw a line in the sand and to get others on our side? Do we, um, do we avoid them? Do we just not have anything to do with them? and try to avoid situations that would put us together? Or worse, do we say, you know what? There's probably a better church out there. I'll just go to it. As if we won't take our baggage there with us and cause new problems for that group or that fellowship. You see, none of those things are acceptable answers or acceptable solutions because the command is still to live at peace with one another. Because we belong to Christ, we belong to each other. So how do we solve this? What is the solution? Paul begins in chapter 4, or in verse 4, where we must begin. He begins by giving us the example. And that example, of course, is Jesus. He says in verse 4, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice. The first thing we must do is take our mind, our thoughts, and our attention of all of those around us because we'll always, we will always find reason for conflict. We will always find things wrong. And the only way to get around that is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus is fixed and eternal, he is the only one that can get us through conflict. He is the only one that we can focus on that will not shift. And he's the only thing that we can focus on that will truly unify us. And also, in our focusing on him we see the clearest example of what conflict resolution really looks like. Because the greatest conflict known to humanity is the conflict between us, a rebellious people, and a holy and loving God. And in that reconciliation, we see the greatest example of what conflict, with it, of conflict resolution within the body of Christ looks like. And Paul gives it to us earlier in Philippians in chapter 2 verses 4 or 5 through 8. He says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave 
and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, the hum the, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This must be the first step in resolving conflict among ourselves. We must look to Christ as our example, and we must be focused on him rather than focusing on the other person. If this step's not in place, we should not assume that any of the others would work. But if this is in place, we then get to Paul's commands in verse 5. He says in verse 5, Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. If you read this in a different translation, the word considerate may also be translated as gentleness or reasonableness. Now, it's not that any of these three words would work or that it could be translated in any of these three ways. It's that the word that's being translated here encompasses all three of these, and there's just really not a good English translation that conveys the message quite like it should be conveyed. So that's why you see, and some translations consider it, some gentle, some reasonable. I think gentleness is the hardest one for us to deal with, so that's the one I will go with. What does it look like to be gentle? King Solomon um, shows us the value almost immediately of being gentle. He says in Proverbs 15, A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare but I don't think we like gentleness. Gentleness is a word kind of like meekness, and we see it as weakness. We see it as ourselves being somewhat of a pushover. We don't like gentleness because it just doesn't sound very, I don't know, good. It pushes back against my sinful nature that wants to promote my ideas, that wants to always be right. But what would it look like if we were truly gentle with conflicts in the church. What would the outside world think if they saw us giving priority to another person in conflict in non-eternal matters? I say in non-eternal matters because as we talk about church unity, understand that when people begin leaving the faith, when they begin buying into destructive doctrines, division must take place in those situations. But... If we're talking about non-eternal things, what would it look like just to say, you know what, we'll do it your way. You can have your way. You see, I think yielding in conflict shows that we really do believe in the sovereignty of God. Like, I don't have to have my way for things to be right. I view God as being so sovereign that even though I don't think that's the way we should go... When I yield, I show that I do still believe that God is in control. He can work the situation out when I give priority to this person in conflict and thing goes, the things go their way rather than mine, as well as he can work things out if I had gotten my way. Yielding in conflict gives the world a larger picture of what the sovereignty of God looks like. And if we still have difficulty dealing with gentleness, just remember how gently Jesus dealt with us. If we have that in place, we notice that verse 6 becomes a little easier to deal with. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. 
His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This verse is often taken out of context and applied to worry outside of the context of church conflict. And whatever broader applications may apply to this verse, understand that this verse is written in response to how to deal with church conflict. Paul is addressing what I heard one pastor call the evangelical sin of worry. We don't like to talk about worry because we all do it. We all focus on it. We'll talk about bigger things that's not a struggle for us that are sin, but we dodge this one. But look at what he says. He says, don't worry. It's an absolute command. How much of our time is wasted worrying about what other people may be saying about us? How much of our time is wasted worrying about how a conflict or a potential conflict may end? We may even make it holy and say that we're concerned for the welfare of the church, but all we're doing is wasting our time in worry. How much time is spent worrying, wondering how we're going to balance the scales because an offense has been committed against us. But the answer to worry is not just not to think about it. Notice Paul doesn't say not to think about these things. He says rather, instead of worrying about them, pray about them. Take them to your creator. Take them to the one who can actually address the issue rather than keeping it in your mind, rolling around because you can't do anything about it anyway. All you're doing is stressing yourself out and causing yourself to make dumb decisions as it uh, pertains to getting along with people within the body. So rather than committing the sin of worry, let us focus our attention where our attention should be anyway on Christ and let's take worry that's associated with conflict or potential conflict to our creator because he's the only one that can do anything about it to begin with. He goes on and says that when we do that, when we go from worrying to praying about the issue, it's then we will experience God's peace. And not only will we experience some kind of temporary thing, we'll experience a peace that Paul says exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard our hearts and minds as we live in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is pointing us back to what our focus must be, and that is on our Savior. That is on Christ. He ends this by taking time to look at practically what our minds should be set on. He starts in verse 8 and says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. I love that Paul is not specific here. He doesn't give us a list. Because if he'd given us a list, we'd have taken this list, and we would constantly be trying to go down this list and trying to do it, and we'd always point back to Philippians 4, and I've got to do this list, and I've got to, if I want to fix this, then I've got to focus on this list. Rather, he forces us to take in the full weight of Scripture. He says, is it true? You know what's true. You've, you've, you, you know what Christ taught. You know what me and the other apostles taught. Is it true? Then focus on these things. Is it honorable? Focus on it. 
Is it right? Put your mind there. Is it pure, lovely, and admirable? If it is, then put your mind on those things. But remember, this comes at the end. We cannot assume that we can jump to verse 8 and have any, any kind of uh, control over worry and conflict in our lives if we skip verse 4, which commands us to keep our mind, our hearts, our attention focused on Jesus. These things in and of themselves will not bring unity, but if our focus is Christ and we're not worrying and we're focused on these things, then we will see unity produced within the body. He says, keep putting these things into practice. The idea is that we're going to wane in these things. We must constantly refocus our attention back on Christ, back on his teachings, and back on his commands. It's something that because we're not in eternity yet, and because there is this war inside us between what's right and holy, and what I want to do, we have to keep battling against what I want to do. We begin looking around, and as we look, conflict inevitably will be stirred in our hearts, whether we express it or not. Something in the church will be lost. But as that happens, and we begin to focus, we notice it, and we begin to focus on our Savior and our example, everything starts to fall back into place once again. The band can come on up. As I said, conflict is something that the church dealt with pretty early on. Despite the initial success, we see that most of the epistles deal with conflict in some form or another. Paul ends his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.11 by saying this, Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow in maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. This morning I've been talking about the value of unity within the body of Christ. But what does that mean to the outside world? I want us to wrap up by looking at something that I've just kind of skimmed over uh, so far. You see, unity is good within the church. Um, Conflict resolution brings glory to God within this family. But it's not the only benefit. Unity is evidence to an unbelieving world of the work of Christ in his body. A.W. Tozer In his book, The Pursuit of God, says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship? Unity within the body is beneficial for us as the body. But it is also the evidence that is given that Jesus is who he said he was. Paul recognizes this in 4 when he says, Be full of joy in the Lord. I say again, rejoice. Jesus at the end of his prayer is praying for unity because that is the sign that the outside world will see and believe that he is who he said that he was. The world should see a radical pushback against what they are experiencing. They know they long for unity, but they can never quite achieve, achieve it 
We should be the example. We should be what they look to and say, how in the world are these people able to do this? No other group on earth can be as diverse as this group and still be unified. And that is our opportunity when they begin asking the questions of why we're this way to point to our source of grace, to point to our creator and our savior and say that our unity is based not on what we do, but on what he has done for us. You see, because we belong to Christ, we belong to each other. And if we get that, what we experience here will be a radical pushback against what the world sees and experiences as it concerns being unified. So this morning, as we go into a time of response, I just want us to reflect for a minute of the greatest conflict resolution to ever take place, the one between us, a rebellious people, against a loving God and the steps that were taken, not by us, but by God, to resolve that conflict. I want us to reflect as we take the bread, which represents his body that was broken for us and dip it in the juice. I want us to reflect on the reality of what it cost for us to be reconciled to God. Again, looking at Philippians 2, 5 through 8 as our example. It says, we must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Let's think about this morning during communion the humility of a God who would become a slave and would ultimately die so that we could be reconciled to God. And as we think about that, let's also think that because we have been given grace, because grace has been extended to us in such a magnificent way, it is now ours to extend to those around us.